Uh, if you are just joining us today, and I recognize at any given time, we've got folks that are just walking in for the very first time or tuning in online for the first time. Uh, I want to just catch you up on where we are in a journey. We have been in a six-week study of the letter to the Galatians in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, many, many years ago, founded in a region of the ancient world that is consonant with uh, Turkey today, uh, a series of churches in a region called Galatia. And these small Christian communities dotted around that landscape had been instructed in the, in the way of Jesus. And he writes them uh, a letter because he is concerned that they're losing the way. He's, he's not with them physically anymore. And he's concerned that they have been uh, listening to the voices of other instructors that are dragging them back towards religion. Uh, religion, we talked about earlier in the, in, the, in the song that we just sung, is not actually what Jesus is about. Jesus is about a way of relationship that's very different than religion. It's not about a tradition, it's about a truth, a way of life that is, that is different from that, that sort of hidebound legalism that religion so often uh, tends towards. And so he is, he is trying to extricate the Galatians' minds from these, these false or fake forms of Christianity. And we've called this series Real, uh, The Search for Authentic Faith, because we recognize that in our time too, there are a lot of voices out there that are, that are regularly um, drawing us back towards the way of religion versus the way of, of Christ. Uh, for example, um, faith can become merely about superficial rituals, about uh, you know, religious acts and ceremonies and, and traditions. Not to say that those things are inherently wrong, they're not, they can be instruments that help us grow uh, in a genuine faith, but we always want to remember that it is ultimately the condition of our heart, it's what go what's going on inside of us, and the vector and the movement of our, of our, of our life, our, our inside life, that God is most concerned about. We can do be, be doing a million rituals, but if, if our heart is not changing and becoming more like him, then, then we're missing something. Uh, and so Paul addresses that as one of the great themes in his letter to the, to the Galatians. Uh, sometimes faith can come to be a, uh, a device we use to feel more superior than other people. And uh, religious life can often be a way of sort of separating ourselves from, from those other people who don't have, have it the way we have it, who aren't as, as, as morally pure, we might think, as, as, uh, as they should be or as we are. Uh, but, but the way of Jesus is different than that. The way of Jesus is about a profound sense of humility before God. It's not a prideful thing if it's being practiced authentically. It's, it's, a, it, it's such an odd sense of the wonder of who God is and his holiness and his beauty and, and goodness that we're just forever humble and it, and, it, and it makes us more humble, hopefully, towards other people as, as well. Faith can sometimes become the belief that we can save ourselves by racking up enough moral merit badges. This notion that we can impress God into accepting us, into bringing us into, into heaven. But, but the true faith that Jesus comes to establish and Paul tries to reinforce 
�����������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������
that we're really looking for. Does this make sense? And you see how this is, if you've been with us these past weeks, these are some of the big ideas that have come out of uh, Galatians 1 through 5. Well, we're wrapping up the series today. And uh, I'm going to be sorry to say goodbye to Galatians. It's been kind of an amazing study. But we're going to hit chapter 6 today, uh, the final chapter of the book. And I love this chapter. Uh, And part of the reason why I love this chapter is because up to now, the first five chapters of the book, Paul's been doing a lot of really heavy intellectual stuff. He's been doing a lot of of, of theology, in a sense, uh, trying to get across these very big, important ideas. In the last chapter of his letter to the church in Galatia, he, um, he turns to sort of daily life. He turns towards the more practical concerns of our lives. And I think you're going to find that there's some really good stuff, very practical stuff in this last chapter for you. We're going to look at just 10 verses. And uh, there are more verses in this chapter. We're just going to look at 10. That's all that we have time for today. And, and it's in these 10 verses that Paul outlines two of the most important calls that Christ has for any of us. Uh, Two uh, movements that he wants us to be about in life that have great practical value. And if we live into these things, it will make a real difference in anybody's life. So let me touch briefly on each one of these calls, if I may, and then I'll let you go on your way today. If you want to follow Jesus authentically, if, if you want a real faith, of the kind that he's looking for, then you will be somebody who recognizes and gives yourself first and foremost to his calling to be part of a practice of what I would call communal restoration. This is big idea number one, that you are called to be part of a practice of communal restoration. Here's how Paul puts it in verse one of Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, he's talking to the crowd, he's talking to the, to the church, to all of us, the community. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, and he doesn't mean if we catch you, because <laughs> we're looking, he doesn't mean that. He means if they've been entrapped by, if they've been ensnared by, if they're like caught in a thicket by, and this is how sin works very often. We, do, we don't really even recognize we're getting into it at the front end, and then all of a sudden we're bound by it, and it's, it's enslaved us in some way. It's chained us uh, in some way. If somebody is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, and he's been telling us through all these chapters beforehand, there are two ways to go in life. You can live by the flesh, by all the natural human desires, you know, envy and greed and anger and lust and all those passions, or you can live by the Spirit, and that's the way of love and joy and peace and patience and those things. Uh, For those of you who have chosen to say, hey, I want to live by the Spirit, I hope that's you. hope everybody in the room is saying, yeah, I want to live by the Spirit. Um, You should restore that person. What's the adverb there? Gently, yeah. You should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. As you're entering into an inter, uh, interaction with somebody to help in the restoration process, watch yourself and that, you don't, that you don't stumble. So one of the most critical concepts that gets embraced by everyone who authentically follows Jesus is that we are all people in need of restoration. Everybody is. Everybody we ever meet, including ourselves in the mirror, 
is in need of restoration. Or to, or to use a, a metaphor, we're all fixer-uppers. Our sole son, Cole, and daughter-in-law, Heather, uh, I think might even be in the house today. They're in the process of, of moving up to Michigan from Austin, Texas, and, uh, and they have bought their first home. And we are just so jazzed for them, the excitement of the first home. We're going to be sorry because we're going to lose the grand puppy that we've been babysitting dog sitting last month, a little Bernardoodle puppy, but they're going to be establishing a new home and a life together, and it's going to be filled with laughter and memory making and, and holidays and all the good stuff of life that we all uh, cherish so much, and, um, and it's going to be a great experience, but as I said, the first house they bought, this is a fixer-upper. Uh, there are issues. Uh, there are electrical issues, and there are drainage issues, and, and there are even foundation issues. There are lots of issues, and nobody is surprised or scandalized by that reality. Nobody's uh, uncomfortable admitting that these things are the case, because first houses are often like this, right? Unless you're, unless you've, you're a Bezos and you've inherited a lot of money to get this phenomenal house put up. For most human beings, normal human beings, uh, First houses are fixer-uppers. Now, our kids, fortunately, have got uh, family members and friends who are eager to help with the restoration process that's needed. Uh, and, and some of the people in that circle that around them um, have experience addressing house issues. And uh, I will say that probably my, my brother-in-law, John DeBoer, is going to be more useful than I am in this process. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of people, uh, siblings and others, uh, who can bring some value to helping with the restoration process. And, and one of the evidences of the wisdom of this young couple is that they, are, is they understand that it would be good to tap the assistance of others in the restoration process. If we are wise, we who are going to help, we are going to enter into the helping process, uh, as Paul would say here, Gently. We're going to do it gently. Our son and daughter-in-law do not need critical, controlling help. Right? Sometimes help is offered in a way that doesn't feel much like help because it's so critical and controlling. They need compassionate, considerate help. Help that says, what feels like help to you? And then tries to do that. And if we are savvy... We're also going to approach anything we do to help in the restoration process, uh, we're going to approach it humbly. Uh, as Paul would say in this text, we're going to watch ourselves and avoid the temptation to be haughty or hasty with our intervention because truthfully, we've got issues in our house too. Right? We've got work to do in our own houses too. Do you see the analogy I'm trying to paint here? I hope this will be a helpful uh, mental picture. So our kids have a first home that needs work, and you and I and everybody we ever meet has a first life that needs work. None of us have done this before. All of us are doing life for the first time. All of us have got issues. Our lives are affected by sin. Um, the way that a house is affected by mildew, rot, termites, 
poor plumbing, bad wiring, weak internet, <laughs> you know, all of these different kinds of things are going on inside of the house of our lives. And we do not need to be embarrassed that we've got issues. We don't need to be. We just have to go about addressing them. And if we're wise, seeking the help of other people as we do that. That's how Christians think about life. You know, we, we know that sin is out there, it's part of things, but we know there's a great restorer and that he helps to work through people. Uh, and, and we look for that help. So Paul tells the Galatians, uh, the, the Christians in Galatia, that the church of Jesus is meant to be a people committed to communal restoration. The apostle says, and I quote, carry each other's burdens, you know, get your shoulder underneath the weight of other people's life, and, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Now earlier in the letter to the Galatians, Paul is pretty hard on the whole subject of the law because the Jewish law had gotten really complicated and there was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of codicils to the law and people were crushed by the weight of all these expectations. Jesus boiled it down first to two ideas, to two laws, and then to one. He first boiled it down and said, hey, it all comes down to this. Love God, love neighbor as yourself. And then he took it down to one before he left earth. He said to the disciples, here's the one law I have for you, and it's this. Love everybody you meet the way I have loved you. That's, that's your one simple mission. Love as I have loved you. Uh, and so when we bear each other's burdens, Paul says, we're fulfilling that one law, the law of Christ. So here's a, here's a question to ponder. What if this church, and what if um, your household, and what if the, uh, the circles of friends that you influence or the circle of, of workplace associates that you get the chance to shape and influence, what, if, what if, if those circles became places where it was okay to admit, for anybody to admit, I'm a fixer-upper, by the way, why, why, does, why has AA been so successful in helping people through life? It's a safe place to admit, I'm a fixer-upper, and to find communal restorative help with that reality. What if you could create a circle in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in your church, where people could say, I'm working on my issues, but thank God the burden of doing all the fixing by myself I don't have to carry that alone. I've, I've got help. I've got help. And what if you and I could actually humbly and gently offer help to each other in addressing the big stuff and even the little stuff uh, in each other's lives? And, and, and what might be the impact on our own life or on the life of people around us if we were actually doing that? I mean, what a beautiful life it would be <laughs> If it, if it just came to that kind of simple kind of honesty, humility, gentleness, caring, mutual support. And what an antidote it would be to the world we're living in right now, which is about hating and walling ourselves off and fearing and denying and covering and glossing. 
you know, in so many ways. I read a story many years ago that is allegedly from an ancient time. I don't know if it's a legend. It may well be a legend, but it's an interesting story, and it's a story of a queen who had twin sons. And uh, the twin sons uh, were growing up towards manhood, and the queen was aware that she really needed to designate one of them as the crown prince who would take over from her one day. But there had been some confusion at birth, and it was not clear to anybody anymore which of the two twins had been born first and who would have, you know, by that um, uh, measure, have been chosen as the crown prince. Uh, when other people looked at these twins, they seemed almost identical. I mean, they were just so, so similar. They had, a, had similar intelligence and charm and wit and, and talent and physical strength. But, but the mom, the queen, thought she detected one, one critical difference. She thought she saw in one of these two boys a quality that the other one didn't have. So she calls the, the, the boys to her throne room, uh, and she has this really honest conversation with them. She says, you know, boys, um, the day is coming and it's not all that far off when one of you will have to wear the, the weight of this crown. And, and the burden of sovereignty over all these people and their lives is heavy. And it's very important that, that, that the one of you that has that role not be destroyed by it and is able to bear it, this heavy responsibility. And to discover which of you can do that, can bear that weight most cheerfully and constructively, I'm sending you both to the far corner of my kingdom. And when you get to the far corner of my kingdom, one of my counselors will be there, and the counselors will give to each of you equal burdens that you must carry. And your job is to take those heavy burdens and make your way all the way back here to the palace, and my crown will go to the one who first returns bearing his burden like a king should, like royalty should. So the two boys set off on their journey. And uh, there was a little friendly competition between the boys, and you know, this was going to be kind of an exciting contest, a little, little anxiety-producing. But as they're going along on the journey, they run into this older lady who is struggling under the weight of a really big burden that her frail body is not really entirely up to supporting. And one of the brothers says, hey, let's help her carry that. And the other brother says, no, didn't you hear what mom said? We've got some really heavy burdens of our own that we're going to go need to carry. Let's just keep going. And he just continued on down the road. But the but the other son stopped, and, and he put his shoulder underneath the weight and helped uh, the older woman on her journey until the other son was long out of sight. Well, this pattern continued day by day by day over the course of the journey. And, uh, and, and the, the second son uh, found himself again and again running into people that just had a, a need with which he could see a way of helping. He ran into a, a blind man along the journey and, and, and then ended up guiding him to the place he was trying to go. And that took him several uh, days out of the way of what his, had 
his original itinerary had been, and he ran across somebody that was disabled and that had difficulty uh, uh, walking, and that slowed down his pace a great deal as he kept step and journeyed with that uh, uh, individual. It was actually a child that needed uh, that uh, companionship. At long last, he reached the far edge of the kingdom, and he ran into the, to the designated counselor, and the counselor had a huge pack, and he, he strapped it to the back of the, of the son, and the son was struggling under the weight of that, and he made his way back, all the way back to the palace, and he got to the gate of the palace, and there at the palace gate with his brother, and his brother did not have any burden on his shoulders, and his brother was looking at him incredulously. He says to him, how'd you do it? How'd you make your way back here? I told mom that burden was far too heavy to carry. So I let it go. How did you make it? And the second son had to think about that. And he said, you know, I guess... I guess by the experience of helping bear others' burdens, I developed the strength to carry my own. I want you to think about that last line. The strength to carry your own. Because the call of Christ is, is, is twofold. And like so many of the, of the uh, ethics of the Christian faith, there, there's a tension here that we have to manage. We manage freedom and discipline. We manage grace and truth, right? We have to manage um, the bearing of others' burdens and the bearing of our own. And, and ultimately, this is something that Paul is trying to get us to think about as well. It's the second of the major callings that Paul underlines in the next verses. He, the call to, to follow Christ is shape communities that help each other with our burdens, whether those burdens are, are internal sin or external struggles. But the second major calling he underlines in verse 3 if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive their, themselves. Each one should test their own actions. In other words, as you're looking at other people and what's going on in their lives, don't forget to look at yourself and to test what's going on with you. As you participate in the communal restoration project that, that you're called to, do not lose sight of the other side of the coin, which is the call to personal responsibility. Communal restoration, personal responsibility. Uh, in modern terms, we might say we should be careful about thinking of ourselves as some kind of um, Chip or Joanna Gaines for the world. That we're going to be able to repair everybody else's house. Uh, or we should be careful of thinking of ourselves as some kind of Marvel superhero able to carry everybody else's burdens. Um, and, and we should remember to look at our own house and our own burdens also and, and consider them. We should test our own actions, says Paul. We should say, what are the sins and struggles I'm aware of in my own life? Uh, am I giving enough attention to those? 
What am I doing to address them? What am I doing to address them? And then Paul says, verse four, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. Means doesn't mean that you always do, that hence our need of help from other people, but we should at least endeavor to take responsibility. I like the way that uh, Andy Stanley, a pastor down in Georgia, puts it. He says, you and I were created to be responsible. We're created for responsibility, he says. Before there was sin in the world, go back to the story in Genesis, God gives humanity massive responsibility. Responsibility for their own choices first. I'm fencing off that one tree, don't go there. Responsibility for uh, cultivating the relationship with God, walking with God. Uh, Responsibility for uh, nurturing the relationship with the helpmate, with the other. Responsibility for naming the animals and caring for the animal kingdom and for cultivating the garden, right? There's this responsibility is at the core of of human existence. Uh, Stanley writes, "When, when we have responsibility and are managing it well, we're the happiest. When we know we, okay, I've got this job to do and I'm doing my, my best with it, we're, we're the happiest then. Um, and when we don't have responsibility, think of people that are, you know, retire without a plan for what they're gonna give their lives to. And when we don't have responsibility or, or if we're not managing it well, think of Adam and Eve after the fall, they had not managed it well, uh, you feel kind of bad about yourself. The big idea, you were created to take responsibility and to manage and carry it well. And we've also learned, I think from the study of the scriptures and probably from observation in day-to-day life, is that any community, whether it's a, just a group of two people or a family or a, 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 a church or an organization, a business, a city, state, or even country, says Andy Stanley, Um, that wherever there is a community of any size and people are taking their responsibility seriously, everybody is owning what they need to bring to the the journey, um, that that you don't need as many rules and regulations. In fact, that was the the nation uh, originally, the framers of the nation, uh, were betting on that. That if we have a group of people that that are... that are aligning themselves, trying to be responsive to God and God's calling in life, we won't need so many rules and regulations in this country because people will be God-governed and self-governing in in a way that was unthinkable in other nations. Uh, That was the original uh, vision here. So rules and regulations are needed when people begin to act irresponsibly. Uh, when they are no longer being responsive to the call of God in life. That's when rules and regulations become highly needed. Have you ever noticed what happens when somebody decides, I don't need to be responsive or responsible to authority or to an intelligence beyond me or to a community beyond me? I don't need to be that. I will drive the way I want to. I will manage my body the way I want to. 
I will handle conflict or interact with family or, or deal with my coworkers or make choices uh, the way I want to. Have you ever noticed how when that happens, when somebody becomes that radically individualistic, um, that, that their irresponsibility eventually becomes somebody else's responsibility. Guilty pleasure, we watch My 600-Pound Life at Home. It's a really interesting show. Um, it's the story of folks that are just dealing with uh, accumulated decisions over, over a long period of time and are now in a place where they're, they're actually, they've lost all control, really, over their lives. And, uh, and by the way, this, this isn't just a, a, a physical thing. This, there, are some, there are some sins or some irresponsibility that show, that's easy for everybody else to see, and there are some that are, that are is equally problematic, but it's hidden. Okay, so I'm not dissing somebody who's six or 800 pounds, and you, they go all the way up to 900 and more in this show. But what's really interesting about the show is that so often these people, and the stories are almost identical, um, because almost always the, the person who's got this condition is now um, expecting everybody else to take care of them. Their irresponsibility has become somebody else's responsibility. And these are beautiful people often around them who really want to help, but they just wish that the person would own some more responsibility for themselves. And so it's a metaphor, a parable of our time, uh, I think. Which again is why Paul says, each of you should test your own actions. Look, test myself. Am I being responsible enough? Um, and, and that's something we have to ask for ourselves and, and not compare ourselves so much to people around us because we will always find people that are, that are even more irresponsible, that gives us license to be irresponsible in the way we are. And we'll find some people that are being so highly responsible we'll think, oh, I could never do that, so we kind of give up, right? That's not, that comparison mindset is not what we should be about. He, he says again, test your own actions. Test your own actions. As long as you, it's when, we, it's when we stop paying so much attention to everybody else's status. That's the danger of social media these days. Is we, get, we spend all of our energy thinking about other people's status instead of thinking about, how's it going with me? What's the, what's the next step I could take to live into my full potential? For each of you, says Paul, should carry your own load. Don't be overwhelmed by the long list of responsibilities. Just pick one or two and take one or two constructive steps today to deal with that. And you'll be amazed at, at what a difference that will make over time. I wanna say in closing today that I know we all have got responsibilities. Family responsibilities, work responsibilities, church responsibilities, citizenship responsibilities. You've also got tasks that are uniquely yours that, that we don't even know about, that are on your, your concern list. But would it make a difference, you think, if all of us stopped comparing ourselves to others and just focused on what God has given us to do for today? Would it help if we stopped asking other people to do for us what we actually can do for ourselves or, or stop blaming other people 
for having not done what we should have been doing for ourselves or stop ignoring what Jesus invites us to do where we could help others in a meaningful, useful way? And how would those decisions change life for us? How would they change life for others around us? How could our nation's life change if we could just hold on to this tension between communal restoration and personal responsibility? Don't be deceived, says Paul. God can't be mocked. He says this in the last verses. Don't be conceived. God can not be mocked. God has built the world as an agricultural system that requires rain. Isn't that good? I'm praying for it to stop before you leave here for a little while. <laughs> so then Paul goes on and explicates the agricultural system a little bit. And this is the last part, and it's really useful. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows, who makes the little investments to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And eternal life, remember in the New Testament, is not just forever life, it's a quality of life that begins now. Let us not become weary in doing good. In, in the little acts of restoration, in the little acts of responsibility, let's not become weary in doing these things. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, says Paul, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Let's especially be committed to each other in this process. Uh, and see what God does with that. Let's be people who answer the call of Jesus to communal restoration and personal responsibility to love enough that we bear each other's burdens and in the process develop greater strength to carry our own burdens. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.